Welcome to Footnotes, created by Francis Garrett, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto, with Tony Scott, a PhD candidate in Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. Footnotes is a series of short lectures and research in the field. Each episode features an article or book chapter from an academic book. We aim to make topics of Buddhist studies research freely accessible to students and the public. Hello everyone, this is Tony speaking. I wonder where you are today. Are you listening to this as you stroll through a thicket of trees, as you watch passerbys on a park bench, or as you navigate the mean streets of the city? I want to talk today about an entry to the online Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy called Critical Disability Theory. This entry was written by Melinda Hall, an assistant professor of philosophy at Stetson University in Florida. She specializes in biomedical ethics, continental philosophy, and the philosophy of disability. You might wonder how there can be a philosophy of disability, but take a moment to realize that not all of you are listening to this footnote while walking. We tend to think of the ability to walk as a normalized default activity, but some of us might be listening to this in a wheelchair, unable to leave the house in the first place, or reading this transcript rather than listening. In the same way, the idea behind critical disability theory is that there is no default way to engage with this footnote, or rather, that any default is not naturally bestowed, but the product of social political discourse and the interplay between power and vulnerability. While Buddhism is not directly addressed in this piece, I encourage you to try and imagine how Buddhism has played its own part in naturalizing power relations and oppressing certain groups, but also how an awareness of critical disability theory can help us better understand Buddhism and explore its potential to challenge the hierarchies of our society. The music accompanying us today is called Where the Sylphs Play, a Japanese instrumental piece played on the show, a free reed instrument consisting of 17 slender bamboo pipes, and the ryuteki, a transverse flute made out of bamboo, the sound of which is said to represent the dragon station between the heavenly and human realms. This music was composed by Italian scholar Fabio Rambelli, who works on Japanese religions, and Rory Lindsay, a scholar of Tibetan Buddhism who teaches classical Tibetan language right here at the University of Toronto. A sylph is an imaginary spirit of the air, usually invisible. Though the composers of this piece may not have had critical disability theory in mind, we might be able to see the sylph as an example of the emancipatory potential of this theory, one that seeks not only to develop an academic discourse, but to make invisible members of society visible and to allow them to realize their potential as full members of our communities, just like a sylph flying through the air. Paul begins her entry on laying out the parameters of critical disability theory and its place within and beyond academia. To start with, critical disability theory is not so much an area of research as a multidisciplinary methodology one that seeks to understand how the concept of disability originated and was constructed in history, how this concept was cemented in society and enacted or enforced through politics and government, 
and how disabled people were represented in art, literature, and philosophy. As an active methodology, Hall stresses that the point of such a theory is not just to be productive in the university setting, publishing papers and teaching classes, but to use this methodology to fight for social justice, for so-called disabled people, and to work towards a society that is accessible and open to all. I say so-called disabled because this very term is contested in critical disability theory, with some theorists preferring to leave the term open-ended and undefined, and others arguing that we should do away with the term altogether. At issue here is whether the concept of disability captures the reality of certain individuals, or whether this concept and its application are the result of power relations and inequalities that are then exploited to oppress whole groups of people. In this sense, then, disability has many connections with ideas of class, gender, race, and sexuality, and indeed, all of us have the potential to be disabled. For from a Buddhist perspective, our potential for becoming disabled is rooted in the human condition, for disease and old age are inevitable, facts of our mortal existence that we cannot escape. In the same way, there is no real essence to concepts or ideas in Buddhism, meaning that categories of disabled or able-bodied are empty and thus socially determined. Delving deeper into these issues, Hall divides her entry into several sections, starting with the background of critical disability theory, specifically stemming from more classical forms of disability studies. These classical forms of disability studies adopt what is called the social model, seeking to recover the experience of disabled individuals in the canons of literature and thought, and ultimately aiming towards political and social inclusion of disabled people while invoking the language of civil rights and liberal notions of justice. In contrast, critical disability theory does not focus so much on the social model or individuals, but on an idea of embodiment, or rather, embodied minds, where the notion of pain and collective oppression are primary sites for theorizing about how we relate to one another and our world. As the name suggests, critical disability theory is rooted in the critical theory of neo-Marxists like the Frankfurt School, which seeks to identify aspects of society that appear natural and unchangeable but are in fact the result of strategies of oppression and control exercised through ideology, cultural discourses, and institutions. But simply, critical theory seeks to question what is presented as unquestionable, such as the role disabled people are said to be capable of playing in society and the way they are marginalized compared to so-called normative, able-bodied individuals. Hence, a primary goal of critical disability theory is to denaturalize the concept of disability itself by removing it from a biological, scientific framework to one of human values, oppression, and power. This basis in critical theory provides critical disability theory with a strong intersectionality, meaning that many of the problems critical disability theory seeks to analyze and overturn are the same as those shared by feminist studies, queer theory, and critical race theory. Within this intersectional space, it becomes clear that disability, just like gender and race, are not discovered, but produced, meaning that this act of production can be described, challenged, and even reversed, not just in political terms, but also in terms of culture, philosophy, and psychology. In contrast, the idea of the normative person, of the empty subject who is esteemed as the default embodied individual, is also a construction with a traceable history and purpose 
serving socio-political ends by purveying the concept of a corporeal standard that helps to rank, order, and ultimately oppress diverse groups of people who veer from this standard under its hierarchy. The goal of critical disability theory in challenging this standard and the ableism that props it up is to imagine human beingness differently, to allow for and embrace the full diversity of the human body and embodied experience without valorizing one type over any other. Continuing on this theme of intersectionality, Hall goes on to describe the array of interdisciplinary approaches found in critical disability theory, especially its overlap with queer theory, critical race studies, indigenous theory, and postcolonial theory. For instance, queer theory and critical disability theory come together under the umbrella of crypt theory, which questions the casting of these issues in a medical light, is suspicious of liberal notions of acceptance and tolerance, and explores the shared act of coming out or revealing one's sexuality and vulnerabilities in public, such as struggles with mental health. Queer theory and critical disability theory, in turn, share much in common with critical race theory, especially in that heteronormativity, or the idea that being straight is normal, and ableism, the idea that there exists a standard and idealized body type, is similar to white supremacy, as all three lead to violence on the pathologized communities who do not fit these standards, such as when black bodies are violated by the police, carceral state, and even other citizens. Another similarity is the ideological nature of race and disability, insofar as both are socially constructed categories that serve to oppress certain groups and elevate others, such as the history of slavery, where pseudo-scientific discourses about the supposed inferiority of African people were used to justify their enslavement. Many of the same issues also arise in indigenous and post-colonial theory, since indigenous and colonized peoples are subject of the same physical and mental violence that a standardized model of whiteness and ableism breeds. An important point that Hall brings up is the fact that in Native American communities, as well as in societies around the world, concepts of the mind and body themselves are radically different than Euro-American paradigms, making it all the more difficult to disentangle ideas of disability within such cultures. The intersectional analysis that results from such overlaps makes critical disability theory a powerful tool to challenge the forces of marginalization and violence that oppress not only disabled people, but all people that do not fit the standard models of patriarchy, capitalism, colonialism, and white supremacy, themselves intertwined and related. After exploring the interdisciplinary nature of critical disability theory, Hall moves on to examine its philosophical approaches, especially in terms of Foucauldian analyses based on the ideas of Michel Foucault, a groundbreaking French thinker who died of HIV AIDS in 1984. One of Foucault's main contributions to intellectual life is his analysis of power, especially how power is enacted not just through top-down violence, but through popular discourse where ideas become unquestioned and instantiated as reflecting reality itself. Within this reading, concepts of impairment and disability are not to be analyzed as medical problems or issues of biology, but as discursive categories reflecting power relations between individuals and groups. One way that Foucault, or rather thinkers following his lead, are able to demonstrate the performative and constructed nature of disability is through the method of genealogy, where the history of how people describe and assign disabled status has shifted and changed, meaning that rather than being a reflection of a scientific reality, this category is a contingent product of social relations and political agendas always in flux. 
Aside from Foucault, another important philosophical method for critical disability theory is that of phenomenology, the study of how individuals subjectively experience the world through consciousness. The importance of phenomenology and other branches of continental philosophy is that they take seriously the body as a powerful point of analysis, allowing scholars and activists to explore in detail the diversity of a bodied existence, especially in terms of how health and illness are experienced by different groups. In so doing, critical disability theorists are able to look not only at historical shifts in discourse about disability, but also carry out a microanalysis on the means of experience and the materiality of the body, namely, the senses and pain. In this way, Buddhism and its sophisticated analysis of the six sense doors, the eyes, the ear, the nose, the skin, the tongue, and the mind, and the six attendant forms of consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tactile consciousness, tongue consciousness, mind consciousness, holds considerable promise for critical disability theory and its inquiry into embodied experience and the constituents of subjectivity. Can you think of any other ways Buddhism might contribute to this conversation, especially in terms of its analysis of pain and suffering? The last section that Hall covers in her entry is the relationship between activism and critical disability theory. As mentioned earlier, critical disability theorists understand that there is a direct link between social and political power relations and the historical and contemporary use of categories like impaired or disabled, categories which are then deployed to oppress and exploit vulnerable groups of people. The recognition of this link means that it is the expressed goal and agenda of many scholars in the field to not just write papers or attend conferences, but to challenge these very social and political power relations as part of larger communities of activists. Given the intersectional nature of critical disability theory, scholars in the field advocate for issues of immigration, fair labor practices, for gender equality, anti-racism, and against ableism. They do so by advocating online or in person telling stories about the lives of marginalized people, and challenging the structures of knowledge production themselves. Thus, one important undercurrent of this activism is that universities are major players in creating and reinforcing the disabled-abled distinction that we have begun to deconstruct here. For universities have their own standards of not just bodily normativity, but cognitive normativity. And these standards often mean certain students and scholars are esteemed and rise to the top, while others who do not fit such standards are disadvantaged, marginalized, and ultimately shut out of the education system. Indeed, the way courses are designed is not always accessible and takes a very particular type of student as a sort of universal model. In challenging this model, it is critical that activism takes place not only in the streets or online, but in the university itself, broadening the definition of what it means to be a student and opening up the classroom to the diverse range of human diversity and difference. To close this footnote, it is necessary to acknowledge one aspect that has largely been left out. Namely, the relation between Buddhism and critical disability theory, or rather, the potential role that Buddhism can play in the future. It cannot be denied that if one were to apply a Foucauldian genealogy on the history of Buddhism, one could find many instances where its institutions, texts, rituals, and powerful elites functioned to actually marginalize groups of people and exclude them as being fully human or capable of participating in the religious path. 
But along with this history of oppression, many of the paradigms and principles of Buddhism can be adopted for critical disability theory or adapted to provide further critical insight. I have already mentioned a few possible areas, but invite you now to reflect on everything you have learned so far about Buddhism and see in what ways it could possibly contribute to critical disability theory, or perhaps more importantly, how critical disability theory might change the way we understand Buddhism. This episode of Footnotes was produced by Tony Scott with sound editing by Jesse Witte. The show's music was Where the Sylphs Play, performed by Fabio Rambelli and Rory Lindsay. The Footnote series is created at the University of Toronto in Canada with support from eCampus Ontario.